I'll stand a bit. That'd be good. Thank you, brother. Well, good morning. It's a joy for uh, Jennifer and I to be in your company today and this week. Um, we, uh, I'm humbled by the invitation to be in your midst this week uh, to come and to speak with you from the Word of God and I'm grateful uh, for this occasion that God has made available to us. And I, I genuinely uh, pray that, um, our, our, that we'll all encounter the Word of God together this week in a way that's really transformative. And so uh, that's my intent, that's my hope, that's my prayer for us, that the Word of God will confront us and convict us and persuade us and encourage us in the way that God purposed it to do when He gave it to us. I want to invite you to turn, if you would, this morning to Luke, the 22nd chapter, is where we're going to uh, spend our time today. And so you, we, we'll just camp out at that passage, Luke chapter 22. And I want to say to you by way of introduction to this text that we're going to look at uh, together this morning, that this comes at the year, this comes at the end of a year of ascent for Jesus. Uh, if you go back to, light, to Luke, the ninth chapter, in verse 51, uh, Jesus resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem uh, as he was looking forward to his ascent, uh, the, the, all the events that would take place in the climax of his ministry with his, uh, his, uh, with his death, burial, and resurrection on that, on that Passover, uh, that, that last Passover of his, of his uh, earthly ministry. And there was a lot of anticipation that Luke especially captures in his gospel surrounding uh, this event. If you go back uh, to the 19th chapter in verse 11, you read about how as they, were, as they were approaching the city of Jerusalem, that there was this great expectation on the part of his followers that something special was going to happen on this particular Passover. In fact, it says that the disciples were expecting that uh, the kingdom was going to appear. I don't know exactly what they were picturing in their mind, but they had something, some vision that something important was going to happen on this Passover. And you, could, you can imagine how they uh, could have seen their circumstance in, in ways that were similar to when Passover originated. Uh, back in, in the time of Moses and when they were in Egypt, uh, when they were captive to, an, to another nation, um, and God sent them a Redeemer who broke them free from the bonds of Egypt with the great plagues that he brought upon Pharaoh and his, uh, and his people and his gods and freed them. And perhaps there was in the minds of Jesus' generation, uh, his followers, that same kind of vision that what God was going to do through Jesus as they made their way to Jerusalem was going to be like what he had done through Moses when he had redeemed them from Egypt. Except now... Their captor is Rome. And so perhaps what vision they had as they made their way to Jerusalem was that somehow God was going to do something mighty to break the back of Rome, to break the power of the emperor over them, uh, to set them free. And certainly when we get to the 22nd chapter, uh, where, that, uh, where we've come to the very eve of Passover, to the, to the night when they're going to, 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 the day before and then the day of, when they actually celebrate the feast, uh, there would have been a heightened anticipation on the part of Jesus' disciples about what's going to happen next. And I just want us to, uh, I, I want us to see, uh, as we look at this, this chapter, Luke chapter 22, uh, about the, the principle that Jesus is... Um, 
branding on the hearts of the disciples at, at, at this moment in time. A, a, a principle that actually they're not even going to get on this night. It's only going to be afterwards that they're going to appreciate what he's showing them here. Because uh, their world is about to be turned upside down over the next 24 hours. I mean, th- this is not going to turn out at all the way that they anticipated. They had in, a vision in mind of great things in Jerusalem, but, but what, what happens are not the great things that they were imagining. Uh, bl- uh, praise be to God, it was greater than they imagined. But they, they don't know that yet. It, it's not going to be some time before they comprehend that. And so with those, uh, with those words of introduction in mind, as we think about our own journey, uh, I want us to get from Luke chapter 22 the principle that Jesus was teaching the twelve and that he intends us to get as well when we read this, uh, when we read and contemplate this text. Luke chapter 22, begin with me if you would in verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put Jesus to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve, and he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money, and he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the multitude. Then came the first day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you've entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they departed and found everything, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So Jesus gave to Peter and John the task of preparing the Passover uh, for this particular Passover celebration. He does it in a rather cryptic way. And I would say to you that his directions are purposely cryptic. Uh, Get from this how this fits into the earlier context that all the other disciples, besides Peter and John, including Judas, are prevented from knowing where Jesus and his disciples will be on Passover Eve. Nobody else will know. Peter and John won't even know where they're going to be until they go and actually prepare the meal. And then the rest, the other ten disciples, aren't going to know until they accompany Jesus into the city, and then they'll find out where they're going to be that night. And so the the fact that the location of this celebration is a mystery delays Jesus' arrest until he has fully prepared his disciples and all the necessary inertia is in place so that everything that happens over the next 24 hours happens at the right time, and and the plan unfolds just as God had intended. So many things about this event are a bit of a mystery. They're left cryptic. Uh, Who the owner of the house is, we don't know. How Jesus made arrangements with him, that's a mystery too. We can guess about that, how that might have happened, but it would be purely speculation. 
But there's a lesson in that mystery that Peter and John discovered and that we need to discover too. What they, what they learned upon their arrival when they got to the house, when they saw the man in the city carrying the pitcher, when they followed him where he was going, when they walked into the house and when they said the script that Jesus had given him, when they spoke the words... Uh, that Jesus had, had given them to rehearse. Where's the guest room in which, we, which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? When, when, they, when all of those things unfold, what they find out is that the Lord's hand had been there ahead of them. The Lord's hand had been there ahead of them. Every other mystery about that doesn't matter, like how Jesus did it, when He did it. But both of those things are really immaterial. The fact that God's hand is always there ahead of us is the message in this little nugget of a story. And it is, it is not just a message in that story, it's actually a message throughout Luke chapter 22. And I want you to comprehend like why that's so significant, why that's so important. I mean, if their world is about to turn upside down, then they need to know that this is not an accident. They, they need to know when they're able to reflect back on these events that there were all of these little indicators, all these hints, more than hints, all of these clear clues, these, these signs that Jesus was very much in control of everything that was unfolding, that none of this was without purpose, that all of this was intentional. So intentional, in fact, that, that, that each of these moments had even been prophesied from, 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 from eons ago. And even as it unfolds, every step along the way is in, unfolding in such a, a purposeful and intentional way. And they are at the heart of Jesus' plans. He's thinking at every step along the way what these men need to see and what they need to know next. They won't get it tonight, but they'll get it later on. And he's going, to, he's going to let these things unfold in such a way that he teaches them exactly what it is that they need to hear so they can be fully equipped for the mission that he has in mind for them. And so the hand of God, the Lord's hand, is always ahead of us is the message I want you to get today. How is his hand ahead of us? Like what do we find his hand doing in our lives as we go on our own way to the new Jerusalem that he has in mind for us. Well, I want to suggest to you that his hand is doing in our lives the very same things that we find his hand doing in this, in this chapter. The first thing that I want you to see is what his hand is doing in this, in this story here with Peter and John. And that is this. His hand is always making the way easier for his servants. His hand, the Lord's hand, is making the way easier for His servants. I, I just love the fact that when Peter and John are given, appointed the task of preparing the Passover meal that night, and, and as, they must have had a lot of questions like, you know, the lamb and uh, the herbs and uh, the, the, the fruit of vine and, 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 and the, the unleavened bread. I mean, all elements that would have been part of that meal that Peter and John have to get together and there's, there's preparation and cooking and all those things to do. There's the, the blood needs to be put over the, the threshold of the door. I mean, all the things that they would do on that, on that Passover and Peter and John have that task and there might be some preparation that 
to be done in the room. But, but, but they, when they, what they find when they get to the city of Jerusalem, when they meet the man with the picture, and when they go to the house, and they find the upper room, and when they see that Jesus' hand has been there ahead of them, what they'll find is that they're not alone in this service. That, I mean, he's made the way easy for them. Like, all of the hard things, all of the heavy lifting that needed to take place, Jesus has already done that. And so all they need to do is, is, is take the materials that, that he has made available to them and just run with it. And, and I just want to say to us, brothers and sisters, that when it comes to our own service, whenever you aspire to be a servant for the Lord, whenever you aspire to take what he's equipped you to do and what he's asked you to do and what he's bid you to do and what he's opened the door for you to do, what you'll, what you'll find... What, what you'll find if you'll, if you'll take on his yoke, the yoke that he's given you to bear, you, you'll find that his hand is ahead of you and that he will make the way easier for you. And there is nothing more delightful, there is nothing more encouraging than when we, when we seek to be kind or when we seek to be generous or when we try to be holy or when we, when we try to encourage or when we try to share our faith or when we try to give a word of encouragement or when we try to send a note or when we show up with a meal or when we open our door for hospitality, it is, it is, it is such a thrill to find that we have been in the hands of the Lord. I mean, that He has helped us along the way and that He's made the service that we intended to give something better than we even anticipated. Peter and John and all of these disciples are going to find that over and over and over again in their ministry when the gospel goes forth from Jerusalem. In those early days when they're, when they're preaching the gospel in, in, in the city streets and finding opposition from the, from the Sanhedrin council, as they're chased out of Jerusalem and they go off to other places, on to Antioch and on to Caesarea and Philippi and, 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 and on to other places, all along the way they're going to find out that the Lord has been, even things that look to be obstacles, He's going to use even their persecution and being driven from Jerusalem in a way that's only going to further his purposes and make them his effective agents to carry those purposes out. And so one of the great messages that I want us to get from this text is that the Lord's hand is ahead of us in our journey and in our travels. And when we bear his yoke, when we are glad to serve, we'll find that we're collaborating with him and that he's collaborating with us in fact, that his hand has been there ahead of us, making the way easier for us when we aspire to serve. The second thing that I want you to see from this text about what his hand is doing comes from what happens at the supper that night. In verse 14, uh, Luke describes for us how Jesus gathered the twelve together and how he, uh, we're going to talk more about this in a few moments, how he took the cup and how he took the bread and how he gave new meaning to those Passover elements. But while he's at the table, he tells the disciples something that's very unsettling. He says to them uh, in verse 21, But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is, go is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed." And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. I, I just uh, imagine being at the table with Jesus. It's an intimate setting. I mean, it's just him and the twelve. 
Uh, and you, you've probably seen the way that uh, the habit was of how they did hospitality in those days. They didn't sit at the table in chairs, but they lay around the table in couches. And so here's this low table, and here are these low couches, and everyone's propped up on their elbow eating their meal at the table. And here is John, and he's right in front of Jesus at his breast, as we read in, in, in John's Gospel about uh, the way that they were arranged at the table. And Jesus makes this pronouncement at the table that the hand of the, of the one who's going to betray him is on the table. And just think if you're like reaching for something to eat at that moment, I mean, just how that would have uh, arrested you. Or looked around at who else had their hand on the table as they were, as they were dining together that night. And, and, the, the, and, uh, and imagine being Judas. And you've got the money in your pocket. And there has been this covert meeting that's taken place between you and uh, the council where you've made this agreement. Your, your plan has been thwarted so far this evening because uh, you didn't know where the meal was going to take place, but you have an idea of where we're going to go next, that, that uh, we're going to go to the garden, and there will be the opportunity to turn him over in private uh, to the soldiers that are going to come and arrest him. But, but here is the message for the disciples that night, and here's even the message for Jesus about just how his hand is ahead of us. Jesus' hand, the Lord's hand, is delaying the folly of the hypocrite. Jesus' hand is delaying the folly of the hypocrite. He didn't have to say what he did that night, did he? But, but it's good for Peter and John and for Andrew and for the other disciples to hear that Jesus knew what Judas was going to do, that this was no secret, that in fact that it had been predicted when David talked about his own sufferings, how uh, the, the one at his table had betrayed him, that there was, that was anticipation of how that would happen with the Christ, with the Messiah, with the anointed one that God was going to send. But do you see that there's even in that an appeal to Judas himself? It doesn't dissuade him. But it had to prick him, did it not? How could he sit at the table that night and not be, and not at least be self-conscious about the fact that Jesus knows? How did he turn his mind off to that? I mean, how did he not, how did he, how did he sit at the table and look across at Jesus and know what was in his heart? Surely he diverted his eyes. Surely he couldn't look the Son of Man in the eyes knowing what he was going to do that night. Has the Lord ever has the Lord ever tried to stand in your way when you were off to do something foolish? There, there are a lot of stories in the Bible where he did that for folks. He did it for Cain when he was all bent out of shape because his brother's sacrifice had been accepted and his was not. God confronted him. He said that sin is knocking at the door of your heart, Cain. And you must, if you don't master it, it's going to master you. You've got to rule over it. But he wouldn't listen. I, I think of Balaam and that, that comical story that's really a tragic story of, of a man who is, uh, who's going off to curse Israel or he's just hoping that there might be, he might make a little something along the way. And his donkey, his donkey sees 
that God is blocking the path. And, and, and were it not for his donkey and how he spoke to him and how he crushed his foot against the wall, then the angel that stood before him would have lopped his head off. And, and, but, but there's the Lord in trying to prevent his folly. And here again we see the Lord trying to stop Judas from proceeding with what Judas is determined to do. In, in a... And in an audience of this size, there's likely to be somebody here today. I mean, who is, uh, maybe you are contemplating some kind of path of folly right now. Uh, it could be that you're caught in some kind of temptation, or you're caught in some kind of sin, or just you're, you're allowing seeds to be sown in your heart that if they go to, if they go to come to fruition are going to be disastrous for your soul and maybe impact other people's souls too. And I have certainly experienced in my life times when somebody came and said something to me and they had no idea when they said the words that they did how much I needed to hear them on that occasion because what they did was, was halt me in my tracks. Or I've had other occasions in my life where I heard things either from the pulpit or in a class or things that were just said on the side, or even something on television, or, or something that I read in a book, that, that, that was, 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 as I look back on that event, a, 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 a blazing sign. A, j, j, just like if you're driving down the road and you see that there's curves ahead, or that there's going to be a bump in the road. Jen and I were, just, we were driving toward Birmingham the other day, and there was a sign on the side of the road. It was a brand new sign, big yellow sign that said bump. And I thought, what's that there for? We found out, like in about 100 feet, there, were, there, was a big, there was a big bump. And I didn't, I, didn't listen, I didn't listen to the sign. I didn't get the message. But, but, but sometimes the Lord, frequently I think, the Lord puts in front of us signs that say, hey, danger ahead. Look out, you're fixing to go off a cliff. And aren't you grateful? I mean, don't we, shouldn't we praise God for the fact that He loves us enough, that He's powerful enough, that He's mighty enough, that He's loving enough, that He's gracious enough that He does that for us. He's doing that for He's doing that for Judas right here. And, and because our God is a living God, He does that for us too. So His hand is ahead of us, delaying the folly of the hypocrite. A, a third thing that I want you to see comes from uh, verse 31 of our text where Jesus turns His attention to Peter. And he says to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. And he said to him, Lord, with you I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I say to you, Peter, the cock will not crow today until you've denied me three times, or denied three times that you know me. Luke goes on to tell us in chapter 22 how that all plays out. Uh, Peter was ready to die for Jesus. He was ready to die fighting for Jesus. When they find themselves in the garden and when Judas comes and betrays Jesus with, with a kiss, uh, Peter had one of the two swords that they had on that uh, occasion, and I don't know why the other sword didn't come out. Maybe it did, but Peter sure came out. And he tried to lop off the... I, I expect he was trying to take off the head of the servant of the high priest, cut off his ear, the ear of Malchus. Jesus 
put it back on, told him to put away his sword. Um, but then when they come to the house of Annas for the first of the interrogations that night, Peter's there and uh, he's warming his hands at the fire and uh, several people, three times, somebody says that they know who Peter is, that they recognize him as being one of Jesus' twelve and, and uh, he does what Jesus said he was going to do. He, he denies him uh, three times before the cock crows that, uh, that, that next morning. Um, Jesus said to Peter that Satan has requested permission to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, he said, that, you, that your faith may not fail. And you, he says, once you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. One of the wonderful things that God's hand is doing ahead of us is he's taking Satan's sifting and he's turning it into God's refining. He's taking Satan's sifting and he's turning it into God's refining. Um, aren't you glad that God does that? There's a, there, there, there's a, the folly that Judas makes that night. There's the folly of Peter. There's a difference, though, between the two. I mean, Peter's certainly in Satan's hands. God has given him permission to test him, but, but Satan is in Judas's heart. There's a difference in these two men. And even though Judas is going to fail, I mean, even though Peter is going to stumble and fall this night, uh, his, uh, it, it, there's no doubt about his sincerity. There's no doubt about his earnestness. There is no doubt about uh, the, 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 the depth of his devotion to Jesus. He, he really does mean that he's willing to die with Jesus. He's willing to die fighting with Jesus. He's not willing to die yielding with Jesus. He's not really willing to die uh, surrendering the way that Jesus is going to surrender that night. That's not what he's prepared. That's not what he's prepared to do. And his, he's not fully informed yet. His, his, his notion about what the kingdom is and about what Jesus is doing, he doesn't understand any of that yet. There's gaps in what he knows. And those gaps in what he knows are impacting the way that he behaves on this occasion. But it is, it is just the, uh, it is the habit of God to let his people experience trials. And I want us to appreciate the fact that there is no other way for God to help our character mature than to allow us to go through those kinds of experiences. I want you to think about one virtue, one, just one virtue that you can acquire apart from experiencing some kind of trial, apart from going through some kind of pain. One virtue that you can just study yourself into having. Or just mentally, like, think about it and you got it. I, I, I can't think of one virtue that I know that I own. In fact, that, that, I, that I do own because I've gone through the trial that has allowed me to, to make that a part of my character. I mean, character, character is the moral shape that we acquire. It is the spiritual muscle that we gain when we choose some virtue and we fight for it. When, when we stand up for it. Then that, that's the only way we get that. So, so think, about, think about different virtues like patience. How do you get patience if you don't have to wait? I mean, there's no other way. The only way that you acquire patience is for God putting you in a situation where you have to wait on Him. 
How do you know that you own forgiveness unless you've been offended or wronged? I mean, the only way that you know that you've learned a heart of mercy, that you've learned a heart of forgiveness, is if somebody does something to hurt you unjustly. And then, and then you are put in the situation of making a choice whether to show mercy or not. How, how, do, you, how do you know that you have self-control if you're, not, if you're not put in a situation where it is tempting, where it is mighty appealing to, to give in? if you've not heard the lie of Satan that says that you'll not surely die, that your eyes are going to be opened and it's going to be so good. It's going to be so much better than what you have now. Can you believe that God has put you in this situation and He won't just let you eat whatever you want? Can you, you see, unless you've heard that lie, unless you've been confronted with that kind of temptation, how, how do you really know, how, how do you know that you own self-control? And so the Lord is putting Peter, Simon, in a situation here where he's going to be sifted. Now, we don't have to fail for us to own that virtue. Uh, Jesus is proof of that. But we are going to be tested. And there are occasions where we fail that test the way that Peter does this night. But what happens is that God takes a heart that is really seeking him a heart that is sincere, a heart that is in earnest, a heart that has, that, has, that has stumbled with Satan's testing and Satan's sifting. And God can turn that, into, turn that into something better, something that betters us, something that shapes us. We read about the journey of Abraham as he made his way from Ur of the Chaldees and went to the land of Canaan. And, and, and lo and behold, he, he, I mean, he, he gets up and he leaves chooses that he's going to live the next hundred years in a tent with Sarah. And, and, and so they, they come across the Fertile Crescent to the land of Canaan, and, and when they get there, there's somebody else living in the land that God promised them. It's a test. And then right after they get to the land in Genesis chapter 12, there's a famine, and so they can't stay, so they run off to Egypt. And do you see how God is working with Abraham through all these experiences? He's in Egypt. Uh, Sarah's a beautiful She's an exotic, beautiful woman from another place. And here she is in a foreign land and he imagines his and her vulnerability and he can't think of any other way around it than to take matters into his own hands. He doesn't intend to tell a lie that's going to hurt anyone else. It's only intended to protect him. And yet what God is teaching him is that he can rely on him all the time. That he can reach to him even when he's in the land of Egypt, when he's, even when he's in another place. In fact, even when he blows it, even when he, when he tells a lie and his wife is put in a predicament that of his own making, God's so mighty and so gracious that he reaches his hand into the household of Pharaoh and delivers him and her. And now he learns that he serves a God. He's, he's chosen to follow a God that he can really trust. And God continues to teach him that. In the, course of his, in the course of his walk. And aren't you glad he does that with us too? His hand is ahead of us. I, I, I expect that there are folks here, probably many folks here, where Satan is sifting you right now. And if he's not right now, he has before, and he will again. And he's looking to see what you're made of. And if the, if the, if the devotion that you've professed for Jesus is a devotion that is that is true. And maybe, maybe you, like Peter, 
you know, are a little overconfident. Um, are, are serious, but they're just things that you don't know, things that you haven't experienced yet. Uh, and the, the, the encouragement that I want us to draw from this text is that whatever Satan throws at you, I'm not, I'm not saying that we should take his threat lightly. Uh, we, we, need, we need to understand that he's a roaring lion who's seeking whom he may devour, but our God is mightier than him, and he can take all of those things that he intends for our destruction, and he can turn them into our betterment the same way that he did with Peter. Uh, look with, with me, if you would, at uh, what Jesus says at the meal that night as they take the supper together. In Luke chapter 22, let's look at verse uh, 14 as he sits at the supper with them. Jesus says, and when the, or Luke says, And when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This is the cup which is poured out for you. Or, or this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, I, I want you to see that Jesus has taken the elements of the supper that night. He's taken the bread. And he's saying to the disciples, this is going to have a new meaning going forward. Uh, this represents my body, which is given for you, broken for you. And he takes the cup and he says, this is going to have new meaning too. This is the, the, the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And so he gives significance to that. He does it even before, before they even know what the real meaning of that is going to be. I mean, it's not only after he's crucified and raised from the dead that they're really going to comprehend that. Um. Jesus is taking an event that will be the most traumatic thing that these men have ever witnessed in their life. I mean, I know that there's innocents that suffer in the world. I know that happens every day. There's pain and there's tragedy that ought not to, that, that's unjust, that's just wrong. And, 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 and those that, that, that have, have not, those that, that don't deserve to suffer experience suffering. But there has never been in all of human history a, a greater wrong, a greater tragedy than the one that was done that night when our Lord, when our Lord who truly was innocent, who was the Lamb of God, who was, who was innocent and, and yet had the power to choose right from wrong, there never has been anything so tragic as what happened that night when, when, when all of man, Jew and Gentile, collaborated together to, to, to hang the Son of God on a cross. And yet, Jesus is, even right here, taking something that is the most meaningless, it would seem, the most tragic, the most painful, the most awful, the blackest, the darkest, the, the, the worst thing that could ever happen, that humankind has ever collaborated to do together. He's taken that and he has made it the most meaningful event that has ever occurred in human history. 
the, the, the most triumphant thing that could ever happen for mankind. He, he's, he's taking that and He's transformed it into something that is beautiful, that's awesome, that shows us both the holiness of God and the graciousness of God at the same time. That is both an indictment of sin and yet at the same time gives potentially forgiveness from sin to every human being that has ever lived. That is awesome. Now, His hand is still doing that. I mean, if He could take the things that night that don't make any sense and turn them into something good, can He do that in your life? Can He take the things that we don't know why, we don't get it, we, don't, we, can't, we can't fathom it, we can't make sense of it. Can He take that and can He make it meaningful? These men are going to experience a lot of that in the course of their ministry. And he's going to find, they're going to find over and over again that yes, indeed, he can. He can take the things that they didn't see coming, the things that they didn't anticipate, the things that are awful, the things that are tragic, and he can turn them into something that is transformative, something that's victorious because they saw him do it that day when the Son of God was nailed to the cross and when he became the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I mean, what if this whole event, this whole week, had worked out the way that the Jews anticipated? What if Jesus had been the kind of deliverer that would break the, 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 the iron grip of the Romans? I mean, it would have been something that would have made everybody happy that week. But do you see that he, his hand was ahead of us doing something far better something we couldn't comprehend, something that was unimaginable. That's our God, folks. That's who we serve and worship, a God whose hand is always ahead of us. Thank you all for your attention.